This is a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. As always, I want to say thank you to the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for helping to make this happen. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Um, so we are moving forward in history, slowly but surely. Um, just so you know, uh, first of all, there's a class list going around. Please never ask me to, to hand it out. Obviously, it creates an obligation. But uh, that way, for instance, if we have to cancel the class um, for any reason, God forbid, then I'll be able to let you know. Um, so sign up there if you would like to know what's happening. Um, also, as I said, overview. We are starting with the Mishnah. Last week, we did a little bit of a review, try to get some of the political background. We're going to put the capstone on that today. Uh, today, we'll talk about what is the Mishnah and a little bit of thought about how it came to be in the form that we know it. Um, looking forward, the class has been advertised from the Mishnah to the Gaonim. As I was going through my notes over the last week or so, my sense is that we will actually get further, um, that the, the amount of material um, is perhaps uh, flexible in terms of marking off the turning points in Jewish history, which is really the goal, because I could dump information on you guys from now until you know, sort of next Tuesday, but I don't really think that that's called education. So um, I'm going to pick up where we left off. Any questions or comments that were lingering before I just sort of dive into the stream of the flow here? Questions or comments? We spoke about these three Roman-Jewish wars um, and how they set not only the political context for the emergence of the Mishnah, but in many ways the cultural context. Questions, comments, things that people are just burning they, all week long and been bugging them, which I remind you, you can always email me. Uh, some people have indeed indulged in that, and I try to get back to you. Remember, terrible correspondent. If you write and say hi, I won't write you back. But if you have a question, God willing, I will do my best to answer it. Okay, so if things come up, you can stop me if you can. Um, so for now, where are we? Uh, we're, I want you to think smoking ruins of the national vessel. Right? As we spoke about, there are two competing historiographies. One pictures the end of an era with the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 of the Common Era. Right? That was the Romans, or depending on who you ask, perhaps it was our sins. Right? We're going to talk about that theology as we move along. Um, that's, by and large, a Christian historiography that sees an end of an era with the destruction of the Temple because it's very important for Christianity that there is no longer an importance to embodiment in the divine human relationship. And that, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because it's going to be less significant today, but as we begin to speak about the culture which emerges from the Mishnah in competition with the Christian culture, ultimately with the Persians and then the Muslims, we're going to see that the tension around embodiment will be a constant. What do I mean? Is it, like I said, it used to be if you were a Jew, it meant you were from Judea. It was a place. It's true, there was also an emerging thing called the religion of Judaism, right? Um, but as long as the temple stood and the national boundaries were recognizable in Judea, then it was easy to say, what's a Jew? As soon as those boundaries are removed and the temple is destroyed, the question of what a Jew is becomes pressing. And the answer that Christianity will answer is that it is a spiritualized relationship with God, right? That will be our discussion when we get into early Christianity's attitude of spiritual Israel and what's known as replacement theology, right? And, and so there's a historiography that draws the end of an era at the destruction of the temple, and then essentially the Jews of the Old Testament are gone. 
the historiography we're working on is, well, no, that was the first of the three Roman Jewish wars. There was also, as we called the, you know, the Kitos War, Merida Tfutzot, we spoke about that sort of bloody report that Cassius Deo gave us about the Jews drinking the blood of their enemies, right? Then there was the third war of the Bar Kokhba revolt where we ended. And the Bar Kokhba revolt, just to give you the image, is when the rabbis, after Betar fell, right? And, and the Gemara and the Yerushalmi says that the blood flowed out from Betar a kilometer out to sea, that that's how bad the slaughter was, right? That, that the conclusion, and then the Caesar made a decree that the bodies of Etar would not be allowed to be buried for three years. And it was a miracle, right, that, that, that the bodies were not only eventually allowed to be buried, but that they had not rotted. And that was when the sages instituted the bracha, hatov umetiv, God is good because they were allowed to bury them, and does good because the bodies had not rotted. But that's when the notion of the benevolent God makes its way into rabbinic theology, which I saw a few people found Shocking, if not downright upsetting. But as I pointed out to you, there's a very profound insight in what will allow Am Yisrael to go from being a people who has a geographic center and a spiritual center in the temple and in Judea, who has a strong national heritage that has lasted at this point with some breaks, um, but for a thousand years in the land, and survive for 2,000 or so outside of the land. And, and that is the ability to transform suffering and trauma into a source of positive identity. Remember that's why I told you? That if you, don't, if you can't bury people, if you can't identify, children can't inherit, women can't remarry, that you are stuck, as so often happens to individuals and even peoples, stuck in the trauma of the past. And that if you want to move forward, a lot of what we're going to see is this incredible ability of the rabbinic class to constantly absorb and transform the suffering of history into sources of positive identity. And the Mishnah, in a very strange way, will be a, pr a primary vessel for that. So that's kind of where we were at. Um, last piece in terms of the uh, way in which the Bar Kokhba revolt re sort of affects Jews really until today um, is it leaves a very bad taste in the mouth of the rabbis about messianism. Messianism. Right? The idea, right? We had this contrast I drew for you between Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, who, when he was faced with the three wishes from Vespasian at the gates of the second temple right before it was going to be destroyed, did not ask for Jerusalem. He only asked for a little bit. He wanted to save a little, as the, as the Gemara says. And Rabbi Akiva's sort of criticism, why didn't he tell Vespasian to go away, and this contrast between what it means to have a saving remnant and what it means to go for broke. He asks for three things. He asks for the sages at Yavna, which historically becomes the most significant. He asks for the family of Gamliel, which is the descendants of Hillel, which will play into our story today because that's where Yuya Nasi is his line. And for a doctor for Abzadak, which is a discussion we had last semester. I can't, can't go back there, but it's personally my favorite of the three. Um, so these two competing worldviews continue in Am Yisrael today is the goal Pragmatism, listen, take what you can, because tafasta meruba lo tafasta, as our sages say. If you grab too much, you get nothing, right? This is, we've all done it, right? When I'm trying to clean up the living room, my kids have left a mess, I'm just going to take that last box of Legos, and what happens? It all goes, right? If I had just made two trips, I would have been better off. That's tafasta meruba lo tafasta. If you try 
to grab everything, then often you will end up with nothing. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is the character who sort of embodies this attitude of take what you can and leave the rest. Rabbi Akiva, on the other hand, we said, was this it's crazy thing. He went for the false messiah, almost destroyed the Jewish people. The Romans brought to bear more force in crushing the Bar Kokhba revolt than they did in destroying the temple. And not only that, when it was over, they decided to get rid of Judaism itself, right? Hadrian, as we said, took a playbook from the, from the, uh, the time of the Greeks from Antiochus and outlawed circumcision, outlawed the learning of the Torah, outlawed the sanctification of the moon, right? We have the famous story, which we read a lot of the stories of the 10 martyrs, which has worked its way into our liturgy, especially for Ashkenazim on um, Yom Kippur, thank you. At the end of the Avoda service, it also shows up on the 9th of Av. Um, these, a lot of these 10 martyrs are brought together from this time of persecution, right? And, and we'll speak about one of them in a particular context today if it comes back around on the wheel. But the idea being that, that Hadrian had understood that in order to get rid of the national identity of the Jewish people, you had to get rid of their religious identity. Right? That was what no one else apparently had figured out up until then. Right? Those first two Roman wars, the goal was, goal was crush the national power of the Jews let them have their religion. What do we care? Suddenly, Hadrian woke up to the fact that if you get rid of the religion, you can get rid of the national attachment. And then, of course, he literally wiped Judea off the map, and we end up in this situation where you can actually have a Jew, which is not a geographic marker, but is now a religious identity in the modern sense of the term, more or less. That's going to take some time still. Okay, so that's why, for the rabbis, this idea of going for broke this messianic hope of now is the time. Because remember, nobody thinks the Jews are meant to play it small. What's the goal of the Jewish people? That's part of it. Or the goyim. It's by the way, as a teacher and a human being and a Jew, very important to me that we can answer this question. To show God's role. That's the or the goyim part. But I'm going to go bigger. I'll see your or the goyim and I'll raise you geula shlema. Right? Meaning, meaning there, there's, there's an idea of ultimate redemption, which I think that the Orlegoim plays a critical role, and I don't think we're saying different things. It's just sort of different aspects. But, but it's important to me, and I say this to my kids all the time, I say it to my students, if we cannot answer the question of why we're here, then we will end up in very deep trouble when we're faced by real challenges. Right? When life rolls along well and things are easy, I don't know, you got a job, your kids listen to you, I don't know, the rain falls, whatever it is that makes your life easy, then not knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it is, well, maybe it's you wake up in the middle of the night or you drink a little bit too much or whatever, but it doesn't really bother you. It's when crisis strikes and you have no idea why it is you're doing what you're doing that you see things fall apart very quickly. And so therefore, it's important to remember that Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Akiva agreed that the goal of Jewish people is ultimately the takin olam b'malchut shaddai, to bring the whole world together in the service of God. They differed on the particular historical moment in which they lived. And so therefore, the rabbis were left with a very skeptical eye toward people who start saying, now is the time to bring the world together. And that will stick from the second century all the way till when? The 19th. Right? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, Shabtai Tzvi only, only, uh, only hammered at home. I, mean, I doubt we'll get the Shabtai Tzvi this year, but, but we could talk about that. Indeed, in, in Shabtai Tzvi, less, well, I don't go there, but you are correct. There are a number of false messiahs who only make my point even stronger. Okay, so, so that's um, where we find ourselves now. And I left with the specific image of this traditional notion that, that when Rabbi Akiva dies and the stake 
his flesh torn apart by iron rakes by the Roman torturers, that on that very day, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, right, Rabbi Judah the prince, will be born. Right? And I gave you that story, which is brought by the Tosfot and nowhere else, that, that um, of course, the persecutions against the Jews were ongoing when Rabbi Yehuda was born. And his father, Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, was the leader of the Jews, and they were watching very closely whether he was going to circumcise his son. And I mentioned this story that, that um, they were waiting in the antechamber to see the Syrian legate, and, and the Roman woman there was willing to switch her baby with Rabbi Yunanasi, and so Rabbi Yunanasi's mother was able to show the Roman legate a uncircumcised child, and thus they were saved. And, and incidentally, they each ended up nursing each other's children in this process, as I'm sure those of you who have had babies know, they don't just sit around and wait well. So um, we end up with this image that um, that other baby, who according to rabbinic tradition becomes the Emperor Antoninus, imbibes literally a love of the Jews with his mother's milk. Now, it's very important historically where we are in the Roman Empire. No, I mean, maybe. But I I, I should back up on that. What, What this is, is the mythic structure with which the rabbis explain the relationship between Rome and Israel. Is it fact? We have no way of knowing. I think that the average historian would have, would have even in a harsher sense, answered no in the way I did. Um, I'm not a historian, though. I'm a student of history, uh, as well as a student of the rabbis. So I understand that the rabbis were masters of the literary aspect of truth, not its literal. Right? They wanted to tell you a good story, not just to amuse you, but to actually teach you something. Just remember that, that the myth, the power of myth, is that it is a structure which allows a story to maintain its truth and relevance in every generation, which factuality will often not do. Right? It's, it's the very flexibility of myth that allows you to tell it and retell it in a way which maintains its meaning, even though its um, factuality may be called into question. So here we have a classic myth. The very idea that Rabbi Kiva dies and Rabbi Yudha and Nasi are born on the same day is reflective of the Gevara's assertion that God will never leave Am Yisrael without a leader. And so that day of transit, we see this, by the way, who else is this famous when one exits, the other one enters? Shaul and David is another place. It's probably the sort of biblical origin of that. Even there, and there we get, like, it's a mess because they actually overlap and all the problems in their lives is like, wait, who's really king right now? say the sages. You don't have two kings that use the same crown. That's on one hand. On the other hand, we have a promise that there will always be a smooth handoff. Um, makes you wonder who's in charge right now, doesn't it? Um, the... So, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask, is it, which we are the Jews, after all. So, um, but this relationship, which the Gemara develops at length between Rebbe Huda Nasi, who indeed was a historical figure, we can trace him pretty well, and we'll speak a little bit about the details as we go along, and Antoninus, the emperor, is an important relationship. There is no emperor Antoninus in the Roman records. Let's just be straight about this. Such a name does not exist. No, there, there, there are many people who believe, I put in my notes all the different um, opinions. Oh, actually, I think I erased them because it didn't matter to me so much. Um, there, are, there are many people who believe that it was Marcus Aurelius. Who, who was, uh, Marcus Aurelius was, I think I put, oh, I did, good. Um, Marcus Aurelius was, was indeed a real historical character, and I wrote down some information because I know people like that stuff. Oh, here we go. Marcus Aurelius ruled from, or he lived from uh, the years 121 to 180, so that puts him exactly when... According to our tradition, Rebbe was, was, um, was the head of the Sanhedrin. Um, he was the last of the emperors known as the five good emperors. 
Right? He was the, also known as the, philo- the philosopher emperor. He was, a, he was a student of the Stoics. The Stoics are interesting. Basically, their, their, their central teaching, by the way, is that the path to human happiness is found in accepting the moment as it presents itself. And that is contingent on not being controlled by our desire for pleasure or fear for pain. Right? Virtue is the only good in the mind of the Stoics. These are what we would call basic Western morality. Right? The Stoic philosophy will become basic Western morality. There's a significant element that will work its way into early Christian thought, which allows it to be carried forward. And Marcus Aurelius is actually the author of one of the more important um, works of philosophy of uh, late antiquity called The Meditations. Apparently, nobody thinks it was him because it puts him too early for Rebbe. I didn't think that there was an emperor called Antoninus. I'm wrong. That will not be the first or last time. Thank you. Um, the, 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 the general opinion because of his attitude is that it was Marcus Aurelius. But the reason I'm taking the stance that I'm taking is that I don't think it matters. I really don't think it matters. Because when you look at the stories of the Gemara, both the Yerushalmi and the Babli, right, the, 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 the Israel-based Gemara and the Babylonian-based Gemara, which, of course, remember, are written significantly after these events, which is the most critical piece. And, and lest you think that the rabbis had a book of Roman history at their disposal, they did not. Nor did they seem to be particularly an- interested in preserving that information, because when the sages wanted to preserve information, they did. What they were interested in seems to me, well, let me see if you can, you can determine it. When you look at these stories, there are certain themes that come out. First of all, there is a dialogue between Antoninus and Rebbe, which we see nowhere else, maybe a couple of places, but really not of this substance, between a Roman view and a Jewish view where each honors the other. Antoninus will challenge, for instance, in my notes here I put down, he challenges the notion of, um, of punishment after death, right? That, that in the separation between body and soul. A concept, by the way, separation between body and soul, which was really a source of significant controversy. Those who were in the class last year, during, during if you remember, the, the Hellenistic and early Roman period within, between Jews. Because if you look into the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, it's not so easy to see a clear distinction between body and soul. You can find a couple of key passages, but it's in no way obvious or, or explicit. Whereas by the time the rabbinic class begins dictating what Jewish thought is, it's a given that your soul will exist even when your body is gone. <coughs> by the way, why does that matter for this particular historical period? Yeah, but that's far from unique. So we have the whole discourse with Christianity. And don't remember, don't forget, sorry, don't remember, don't forget that the, that the Christians are, as we call Yotze Beit Midrash, they actually have their roots in rabbinic thought. So really they're struggling with the same problem. Let me ask it this way. Some of you may have said Shema today. The second paragraph of the Shema is a contractual relationship between whom? Right? If you listen to my words, which I promise you, the rain will fall. Tonight, by the way, we start asking for rain. Um, let's remember. Uh, between God and whom? Is it between God and me? I'm Israel. 
right? The, the, the vast majority, if not all, we could be mythic fake on one or two, but the vast majority of the contractual promises, the britot within the Torah, are to the people as a whole. Right? So if you do my will, you as a people will survive. The land will prosper, etc. Which means that I, as a Ploni Almoni Israelite, meh, who knows? What might be my peace in eternity? The eternality of Am Yisrael. Right? So long as Israel is on its land, then I live on. Right? Who stood at Sinai, according to the rabbinic tradition? Everybody. Now that can be read in two ways. It can be read in the way of what we call formal logic. I'll give you the example, try to do it quickly. Imagine I'm on a raft, and, and I have 10 logs, and you guys are in the river swimming behind me. And all of a sudden, I bump into another log, but at the same time, a log falls off my raft, which floats back. You're all grateful, you grab onto the log, and I tie the new one on. How many logs on my raft? Still 10, you've got one. Now, I'm, we're going along, and I bump into another log, which causes another log to fall off the back of my raft. You happen to pull your shoelaces off, tie the two together. I tie the new one on. 10 and 2. You see where we're going with this? Imagine it keeps going, and eventually I bump into 10 logs, and the same process keeps happening. Where's my raft? Says who? I'm, I've never, this raft has been there all along. There's a continuity of concept. The parts are interchangeable. This is a, this is a question in formal logic. It's, by the way, I don't dismiss the answer, my raft is behind me. But do you understand? What does it mean that we all stood at Sinai? Does it mean that in the sense of your individual soul, that's a much later thought in Jewish conception. The easiest understanding of that is that Am Yisrael stood at Sinai. And if Am Yisrael stood at Sinai, then we were all there. Why? Because whoever is part of Am Yisrael now is just as much as part of Am Yisrael then and will be in the future. And if I change the shutters, the door, repaint my house, change the thing, it's still my house. I roof and I do the interior. It's still my, where does the house exist? But that is premised on the idea of having the land as a vessel for relationship. Exile is quite problematic because now the Jews are scattered. And this idea of Am Yisrael is conceptual, but we're working on holding it together. What becomes pressing is why the individual is going to do the work to be a Jew. Where's my stake in eternity, separate from all the national promises on which the Tanakh is premised. And now, the eternality of the soul becomes a very important question, as does the prominence of the mitzvot as a vehicle for personal relationship with God. It's not like the mitzvot aren't the vehicle for relationship with God in Tanakh, but it's a national covenant. But this is a major shift that the Mishnah, again, will come to address. And so Antoninus is tussling with Rabbi about these things. And the, the Romans had a very different conception of citizenship. Don't forget, the Romans took the Greek notion, but really developed this notion of citizenship, which is in Western culture the roots of individuality, in at least the body politic. Right? So we also see that Rebbe taught Antoninus, and he was a very important advisor for him in the Gemara, so much so that in the political climate of his day, they had to have like secret language. They would send each other signals. Or there's like a really crazy story where Antoninus insists that Rebbe always kill the messengers that came to get Antoninus, that there was a tunnel from Antoninus' palace to Rebbe's house. They're not going to drag you through all the legends. What do you see from this? Where is that? Uh, that particular one? Well, is it all in one section? No, I have, um, I have down here that his conversion is in, um, is in the Yushalmi in, in Megillah, because there are some opinions that, that Antoninus converts at the end. Um, 
the, uh, there's a section there in, in Sanhedrin. You know, if you, you want to send me an, uh, an email, I can send you like my notes here in the Vodazara here. Um, the, the one about Rebbe killing the messengers is in Novodazara, I remember that. Uh, it's a very strange, because then there's a whole resurrection scene. It's really great. Um, the, so, and by the way, in general, it, um, since I didn't give you guys a, a booklet for this section of the course, the, I just thought it turned off. Um, if people want the sources, you can always send me an email, and I will get them back to you. Um, what I hear in this is that this is the last chance for Roman Israel. Right? What lies ahead, like if you ask the average sort of uh, religious Jew who has imbibed the sort of mythic structure of traditional Judaism today, Rome, thumbs up, Rome, thumbs down. Thumbs down, right? Everybody goes thumbs down, and the enemy, it's Esau and Yaakov. And but it's very interesting that here at a critical moment in the development of Am Yisrael, Rebbe is, is a turning point. Here we have him. Please, can we turn that off? Um, the red. Okay, we we see that not only is there a moment of, of quiet, there's actually a moment of, of of mutualism that they are contributing to each other, that they are challenging each other, that both religiously and politically. That they are are the sort of um, sort of great leaders of their people. It's like a. It's literally. This is what I wrote for myself here. The question I wrote for myself is: Is this is this the last chance for for Yaakov and Esav? <coughs> what do you think? What's Rebbe's motivation? I mean, what's each one's motivation? But we'll start with Rebbe. What would be Rebbe's motivation for survival? Number one, that that they since um, the Book of Daniel, really since the Book of Daniel. The, the, God has been sending a very clear message to Am Yisrael that kingship, meaning the ability to control the context within which we live, now belongs to the nations. It's true, we've had some attempts to take it back, the whole Hasmonean period, etc. But that is the underlying message of the vision of Daniel with which we began this course, which to me is the overarching picture of Jewish history that the sages carried forward. Right? Kingship has been given over. So therefore, if you want to really live in the kingdom of God, Right, which has been progressively moving inwards, and we'll speak about that when we get to more of what the mission is aimed at, then you have to be able to accommodate. You've got to be, work with people. So, so it's not just survival, it's thriving. How do we find a right place? And by the way, it's, a, it's the exact opposite of Bar Kokhba and Rabbi Kiva, notice. Right, he's moving closer to Rome. You think he... Pragmatist? Or he might be an idealist. Wow. Look at Marcus Aurelius or, or Antoninus Pius. Right? Look, these people actually have real values. It's a stoic. I mean, what Jew is going to argue with the notion that, that virtue is the only good? I'm not going to argue with that. If you have an empire that, whose leader says virtue is the only good, that's not just pragmatism. That's simpatico. That's part of it. Right? Also, the pragmatism, the survival, we've just fought three wars, things are very rough. What, what's in it for Antoninus? So this is a bigger question. What is it in it for the, for the Roman Empire? Now remember, at this point, Rome is culturally struggling, right? We have the, the last of the five good emperors in, in Antoninus. He's not on board, so I'll just go like this, right? Uh, what follows afterwards was what I was looking for, is, the, is in the year 193 is in Roman history called the year of the five emperors, which there was another year of the five emperors. Don't be confused. The year of the four emperors, which, which leads up to Vespasian, right? But here, it's the beginning of the end of the Pax Romana. There's a tremendous period of instability which lies ahead, 
which, and we were going to talk about this later, but we can get the political context out of the way, which really culminates in what's known as the crisis of the third century, that the Roman Empire is just too big. It's too big, and it no longer has a, um, a, a presumed culture to keep it afloat. I mean, the classic Roman culture, what's known as, um, ooh, mine is blanking, whatever, the code of, of, of honor, service, and tradition. There's a word for it. It'll come back to me in sleeping tonight. Um, based in the notion of the soldier-citizen, that, that you had an agrarian society on the Italian peninsula where a person's nobility was found through their ability to draw wealth from the land, contribute to society, and serve. Right? That, that model is gone. Now, philosophy makes a very brief attempt to replace it, but philosophy is seen as corrosive to the sort of more... Um, rooted Roman ideals, because a philosopher isn't necessarily rooted in the land, and they're not necessarily taking a posture of service. Their interest is in truth. It's, okay, so the Stoics were particularly interested in moral virtue, but that's not true of all the philosophers in any way. And, and so Judaism, as a way of life which is grounded in action, actually holds a tremendous appeal in the Roman Empire in late antiquity. And as we mentioned last week, and when we speak a little bit more about the development of Christianity, we'll go into more depth, there was a significant um, sort of satellite culture around rabbinic culture, which were known as the Yirei Shemaim. They were the fearers of God, or fearers of heaven. They weren't going to take the last step, circumcision being the big barrier, right? because that was a little bit too much. But there was a tremendous appeal in the moral, ethical teachings of Judaism, as well as its focus on action. Right, as opposed to, if you wanted to be a pagan and you wanted to exercise your sort of religious passions, what did you do? Oh, yeah, orgiastic, decadent, like things which were corrosive to the family structure in particular and didn't necessarily contribute to society. If you wanted to be a philosopher and you wanted to embody your actions, what did you do? Nothing. That's it. it doesn't really work with philosophy. It's Stoics in personal virtue, which is why Stoicism has its, probably its closest you know, to, to the Jews at the time, maybe, you know, Platonic, but, um, and so the, the appeal of Judaism will be actually quite high in late antiquity to a certain segment of Roman society, but in the end of the day, Christianity will basically absorb that energy because they lower the bar. That's what Paul does. He basically lowers the bar of entry, right? It makes it a lot easier, and plus he has a different philosophy, which we'll discuss when the time is right. So, so we're left with this image of, um, of Rebbe and Antonius, as I said, the last chance for uh, Yaakov and Esau. And what it does is it allows, whether it's literally true, and we just, they changed the name as emperor or didn't change the name of emperor, right? Um, the, or whether it is simply the way in which the sages remember this time period, what it allows for is a recovery from the disastrous relationship of the three Roman Jewish wars before the chaos which will set in in the crisis of the third century, where the empire actually, Diocletian, ends that chaos by basically splitting it in half. And it will be reunited, but ultimately it's going to be reunited under the force of Christianity, which is no lover of the Jews at this point in history. And, and so therefore, it's a very important island in time that we see here, and represented by this relationship of Rebbe and Antoninus. And to me, it's important you understand that that's the way in which my experience of the sages' relationship to history Right? That they, they always had some level of facts which they felt, felt were both true and important. You understand? We spoke about this last week. Just because something is true doesn't mean it's important. Like, what historical significance is it to what I ate to breakfast, for breakfast this morning? None. 
Now, you might say, if we could get a, a record of what everyone in our society ate for breakfast over the course of 20 years, that might have historical significance because it's data of understanding what we call social or economic history. But what I ate for breakfast this morning is a fact which has no relevance, right? So what we're looking for is the facts which are important on which we can build a story which will allow us in the 21st century or the sixth millennia, depending on how you look at it, to actually speak about the relationship between two people we never met who represent a social or, or a, a political, what begins as a melding and ultimately leads to a, a rather large breakdown. Okay? So that's just a, a window on the relationship between Rebbe and Antoninus as a background to what the mission is. And as I said, if people want the specific sources, happy to give them to you. You can send me an uh, uh, email, and I will shoot them back to you. So that's politically. Geographically, where are we in, the, in our story at this point in the mission? Anybody know? Mostly, mostly in the Galilee. Right? Mostly, meaning the Jews right now, the dispersion, Josephus says the dispersion begins before the destruction of the Second Temple. He says the Jews are found in every corner of the Roman Empire before the temple is destroyed. Right? Nevertheless, there's a rather large uptick with the destruction and then the three Roman Jewish wars. North Africa has been largely depopulated of Jews at this point, as has Crete, which were major, or sorry, Cyprus, which were major communities. They've begun to repopulate, but the center of Jewish life is going to shift radically to the east, to Babel, to, to the Babylonian or Parthian Empire at this point. Africa was largely depopulated of Jews because of the Quitos War. It will come back. North Africa will become a very important um, uh, bastion. And one of the places that archaeologists look to trace the progress of rabbinic Judaism is where the inscriptions in places like North Africa and, and the Balkans, the fringe Mediterranean place, where the inscriptions in synagogues move from Greek to Hebrew. Right? As, as we'll speak about the power of language, that the rabbis were, were pushing Hebrew as a, as a language. And so it's a very good uh, archaeological marker which is not so easy to come up with, in saying like how quickly did the rabbis as the center of gravity spread. But that lies at the end of our discussion of the Mishnah. We've got to get to the Mishnah first. Um, geographically, though, our story right now is in the southern Galilee. The southern central Galilee, right? Um, Tzipori becomes, right? This is the time, if you look, I have it here, the, the, the sort of what's called the wandering of the Sanhedrin, right? Remember, remember the Sanhedrin is what? Court, Supreme Court. It's a high Jewish court. It is the high Jewish court, right? What are its origins? Right? Again, depends on who you ask. If we look into the traditional Jewish narrative, it's the Moshe and the 70 sages. We see God, right? Moshe right away says, I can't do this alone. God tells him, you know, choose elders from, from each tribe, right? We, we see such an institution in many ways reflected in other areas in, in the Torah itself. Right? However, and we can, you can even trace it in certain book, places in the books of Kings. We, we, might, we might see other evidence. What? It's, uh, it goes right from God gave it to Moses. Joshua. Joshua to the elders. The elders to the prophets. The prophets to the? Men of the great assembly, which is not the exact same thing, but is, is evocative. And last semester, we spoke about the fact that the word Sanhedrin is likely a Greek word which is a strange language to have the term for the Jewish high court, which would in indicate at least the term itself is not biblical, right? Well, there are a lot of terms that come from Greek in there, and, uh, and the, the Jewish assumption says 
For sure, but, but um, as a historian, or at least a student of history, that would tell you that the origins of the term might tell us something about the origins of the institution. Right, because because we, just because the Greeks called the high priest, I don't know, whatever they called him, doesn't mean we're going to change his name. The Kohen Gadol is the Kohen Gadol. So, so there's a question about the origins of the high legal institution. For now, we can we can trace its its um, present development to probably Antiochus the fourth. So we're going to call it um, a Hellenic period, the pre-Hasmonean, very early Second Temple period. There we have extra. Jewish sources which refer to a council of elders with whom the Greeks in the Seleucid Empire were negotiating power questions. They emerge as a real factor in the Hasmonean period. And then by the time the Romans show up, the Romans actually divide Judea and the other Jewish provinces into five sections and create a local Sanhedrin. And that's where we start seeing documentation of that language in each one. But its functions as the Jewish high court, and the Gemara certainly treats it as if it goes straight back to Moshe and the elders. And at this point, you know, the questions of origins are irrelevant. Because the Sanhedrin, even though we associate it with the Jews having the temple built, and you know, ideally a king, and a high priest, and a high court, right? Um, at this point, it is functioning as the leadership council, somewhere between a judicial and a legislative body in modern language, right? which has the ability to not only lead the Jews internally, pass laws, etc., but what else is it doing? Why are the Romans interested in the institution? Because it gets the official Roman stamp. Why do the Romans care that the Jews have a high court? Number one, right? The Romans don't want to go from house to house and ask each Jew to cough up. They want to go to the big Jew and say, where's the sum? Right? This is a pattern which will establish itself. And that's, by the way, not just Roman-Jewish relationship. That's in, in general because we're moving into a world of what's called corporate existence. Now, the Jews are a corporate body. And we'll speak about this more as we go forward in the, in the literal sense of the term, not in the business sense of the term. Right, what's a corporation in business sense? It's a fictional entity that, that brings together a bunch of resources that, are, that you can treat as an individual in law. Right? You, can, you can sue a corporation. You can, you know, a corporation can own things. No, it can't. Like, there's no such thing. In the same way, the Jews will become a corporate body. And, and the fact that the Romans looked to the Sanhedrin to keep internal law, which we know all the way back from the book of Ezra. If you look in Ezra, Ezra was sent at the beginning of the return to Zion by Cyrus. And he was a sofer mahir betorad Moshe. He was a, a well-trained scribe in the law of Moses. Why did the Persians care that Ezra was well-trained scribe in the law of Moses? Like, what do they care? and he'll keep the rules. The, the Persians didn't care how you live their life. Just live an orderly life so you can pay your taxes and have law and order. So in the same way, the Romans weren't really interested in whether the Jews adjudicated according to Roman law or Jewish law. They wanted law and order. So the Sanhedrin is an ideal body to do, number one, pay your taxes, and therefore internally levy those taxes, and number two, keep law and order. And so the Sanhedrin at this point emerges in the wake of the destruction of the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is fascinating. Historically speaking, the historians have a lot of questions. Why did the Romans not treat the Jews as a subjugated people who were given no rights, basically sold into slavery? Instead, the Jews emerge as a people who has a legitimate, no longer a king, but, but Rabbi Yehuda is called the Nasi. A Nasi in modern Hebrew is what? The president literally means prince, but it's a meaning they have a legitimately recognized head 
with a quasi-legislative body centered in the Galilee. And the archaeologists at this point have begun doing a lot of work. At this point, it's been a generation of work, seeing that actually all the way up into the Golan in, in this period, there was significant Jews that there, were, there was a population resurgence that, that Judea proper, meaning the area around Jerusalem and like the Benyam, what we call the Benjamin area, and, and further south into the Jane Deals, was, was devastated by the Romans. But the Galilee apparently was largely untouched, so much so that there are many questions about whether the Galilee even participated in all these revolts. They, they, they may have, the Galileans may have looked at these Judeans as a bunch of stiff necked Jews, remember, Jews from Judea, and that we up in the Galilee who, who keep the Torah and are part of Am Yisrael, that's not our problem. It's, it's, we'll never know, but, there, but there's a lot of interesting work being done in that today. So Hadrian prohibition against circumcision and, and the new moon, that's all... Fades very quickly. Right, once the rebellion is over. So, so the Jews in the Galileo basically have religious freedom. Seems, from the historians I've read, it yeah. seems that Hadrian's persecutions went counter to the Roman spirit of, of tolerance. And that, therefore, when the immediacy of the struggle for supremacy ended, right. that it just lost its, it lost its force. Um, the, the Jews left a bitter taste in the mouth. As we said, you know, that indigestible element of the Roman Empire will get picked up by Christianity. But, but the Romans have bigger fish to fry at this point. Right? The Jews, are, remember, we're a local problem. We're not a global problem at this point. That was the, Titus broke the, broke the walls of Jerusalem and burned the temple in 70. And that's what we reviewed last week. There were three Roman wars. 70 was the first one. And that's what's, it's important that it's so astounding that, that you still have a, uh, a social fabric and, and a sense of, of people who has standing within the Roman Empire at this point after three revolts says that there was something unique about the Jews, which is also part of the background of this relationship between Antoninus and Rebbe. Don't forget, Rebbe is presented as giving Antoninus very important political advice Right? That, that there, there, there was an exchange of, of real advisors, that, that, that Rebbe was the outside eye that helped Antoninus make good decisions when his closest advisors couldn't be trusted, something which the Jews will continue to do as time goes on. We will, we will explore that sort of, um, let's say, less than comfortable relationship that Jews have with absolute power throughout history. Right? If you can trace a line from... Rome, from Herod, all the way to Netanyahu. And you will see, you will see that, that, that the Jews have always been happiest when someone's holding absolute power. It's much safer for the Jews in history when someone is holding the reins of power than when there is a dispersion of power. Um, and therefore, the Jews will play a critical role, by the way, in consolidating it. In consolidating it. Where was the emphasis in that sentence? Um, OK. So this is. The setting. According to our tradition, Rebbe becomes the Nasi in 163 in first Beit Sharim and then Tzipori, both of them are towns in, in the Lower Galilee. Um, the, the title of Nasi, just to remember, who was the first sort of in the line of Rebbe to hold that title? It's Hillel. Right? Hillel's name is declared Nasi in the year 30 before the Common Era, more or less. Right? Um, and his family will ultimately claim, or will be claimed for him, is probably a better way to say it, descendant from the house of David, even though it's a machloka between the Babylon and Yushami, actually what, where his family comes from. But um, for now, you have in Rabbi Hudanasi the rebirth of, of Torah and kingship in one, which is indeed how the Gemara describes both he and 
and Antoninus. And what I want to do is speak about what exactly Rebbe did. What is the Mishnah? All right? Not a simple question, but we don't deal in simple questions here. Um, so you'll see here, probably the easiest way to start is in this wonderful word, redaction. People like to say, Rebbe redacted the Mishnah. What does the word redact mean? Well, but if it meant edit, then we would just say edit, right? We're very fortunate in the English language. We have a lot of synonyms. So edit is, it is, it is a subset of editing. Uh, but it's uh, gathering together different sources and materials. So that's where it's a subset of editing, which involves multiple texts. Right? It's compiling, but also uh, reconciliation and, a, and compilation. And there's, there's going to be authority decisions, which one's the right one, which one we include. Right? The implication here is that Rebbe did not write the Mishnah, that there was something which existed before he worked with it. And by the way, I want to say something that existed, and I use the word write in quotes because we'll speak about in a moment or two with the question of orality, whether the Mishnah was ever written down in his day. But for now, just remember, a text does not mean written down. A text means that you have words which have a fixed form. You understand? You can have an oral text. Uh, it's but it's critical to remember that. And, and we're going to push it that, that, that one of the great challenges of learning history is what's called presentism. Right? We all understand the world the way we understand it, because that's how we understand it. And therefore, consciously or unconsciously, we assume that that's the way that people have always seen the world. I'll just give you the example now, and we'll come back to its significance. I've said this to some of you before. And if I asked you to copy this paper, what would you do? Right, and today you'd probably take a picture with your phone and just say, can I just send it to you on WhatsApp? I mean, right? Now, remember, of course, it's obvious that for most of history that was not the case. Right? So that's just one very, our relationship to textual integrity is absolute. Right? A photocopier doesn't make mistakes. It may smudge. But it doesn't make mistakes, right? To copy something, we have an assumption of absolute integrity. That is simply not true. Just think about it. We had to create an entire class of people, elevate them socially, religiously, and financially in order to maintain the integrity of, of the text of the Torah. Right? You, so fair style. How much does it cost to get a safer Torah written? Tens of thousands of dollars? 30000 There you go, $30,000. Know? Just think it's an astronomical sum. Right? And, and so therefore, the, the, for most of history, textual integrity had nothing to do with exact replication. I don't want to say nothing. It was less one-on-one. -on -one. I, I have a tendency to say things extreme, which is why, by the way, I encourage, I don't remember your name. Gerald. Gerald. What Gerald did there by, by fact-checking, I encourage it. You know, there are teachers who don't like it when people take their phones out, right? I encourage you guys. No. Questions? Well, that's fine. Then I benefited from it. No, I benefited from it. I, I, in the, like, the, and, and this is the nature of the endeavor that we're taking on. It's the amount of information is, is impossible to hold all of it. And so therefore, the benefit of, of, of the world of easy access to information is that we can you know, sort, of, sort of crowdsource where we're going. But I just want to get this point really important across, that when we say that Rebbe redacted the mission, it means that there were, there were texts which predate him. The question of whether those texts were written or oral is one we're going to have to deal with. And the reason that the, that, that difference is important is that where we locate integrity in text, does it exist in meaning 
or does it exist in syntax? Right? Do the words have to have the proper order on the page to be an honest representation of the previous, or do they have to have the same meaning? Well, that we're going to speak about question that. Yes. The Jews for, did not create verbal text. The, the, the Homeric tradition is probably the oldest traceable one, but there are cultures today, people are familiar with the aboriginals in, in, uh, in Australia. Right? They finally started to do real research on the oral traditions of the aboriginal people, and what they've discovered is oftentimes the places where it's really astounding is in their fishing grounds. That there are, there are stories that the aboriginal peoples have been telling about their fishing grounds which map the underwater topography better than the technology that is used today by fishermen with, with sonar. Because you're dealing with literally thousands of years of human experience, which has created a story about what you're looking at. And so, so this capacity of humanity predates the written word by far. Ah, oh, right, because, because and, and we'll speak about that challenge of the, of the limitations of, of the written text. There was another hand over here. The people, yeah. yeah, I was just trying to imagine uh, redacting oral material because of my idea of redaction is so, uh, right. so... How would you redact oral material? I was thinking maybe like when uh, people are sitting around talking about their family histories and uh, somebody says, uh, I think I'm going to collect old stories. Yeah. You're sitting around the family reunion, collect the stories, and then you get multiple of the same story from three different people. Yes. Right. So, so I want to hold this question and, and first talk about what, what is it that Rebbe inherited and from whom. So, so our tradition, and, and many of the scholars agree, is that, um, is that the origins of the structures of the oral law are with Rebbe Akiva. Remember, I, I made that point several times last week when we spoke about like, what was Rebbe Akiva thinking, backing a false messiah, and this whole tragedy. And, and the point I made is that if it were anyone but Rebbe Akiva, we might just say he blew it. And even then, you might have to say he blew it. But then you have to wonder, how is that possible for the person who serves as the bridge across which the oral Torah passes? But in order to understand where that origin lies, we have to make a distinction between Mishnah and Midrash. Right? And just for demonstration's sake, maybe we'll put them up here. Midrash and Mishnah. These are the two forces, I really think, in human thought, but certainly in, in, um, in Jewish intellectual tradition. Midrash, what's the verb form? Lidrosh, which means what? Well, that's one meaning of it. it it's simple meaning is to seek. So that's why, like, as Jesus is a seeking of meaning, but you can be, you know, doshim meltzarim, I could be looking for waiters, right? You see that outside, outside restaurants, right? Meaning it's, it's to seek. Right? Mishnah, l'shanen maybe, and by the way, it's a huge question. I'm not even going to write it here because it's a huge question. What the origins, right? Mishnah Torah, Mishnah Torah, zo, which shows up both in the book of Devarim and in the book of Joshua. Is a, is a tremendous question. And by the way, if you want a real kicker in understanding 
the Jewish relationship to text. Go look up in Joshua, I can find the verse, but where, where he uses the term Mishnah Torah Zo, what the Radak says. Because there the Radak will tell you that, ed- that meaning will always trump grammar in Lashon HaKodesh. Is that, is that you might have grammatical rules that tell you the word Mishneh means to repeat, but there he wants to say it means something else, and he says meaning trumps grammar. Now you need to appreciate why that's important for the difference between a written and an oral text. Why is that important? Is that, that grammar would say that once it's written down, if it's been written down correctly, which we have to assume it is, right? then the text is subject to analysis which cannot involve change of the text itself. Right? You don't say, well, truth is, this is what the text means, and then change it. That's, not, that's cheating. right? Whereas if I can tell you, well, I actually know what this text really means. And I see the way it's written is actually causing you to read it incorrectly. So therefore, I could change the text and have it be a more integral, with more integrity meaning, right? Expression of meaning. You understand the problem here? So therefore, 2,000 years later, a researcher could be looking at something and saying, oh, there's clearly a mistake because this is the earlier text. And this is the later text, and the later text says something different. But what you might be seeing is actually nothing. That later text is correct, because whoever read the earlier text realized that you would read it wrong, because meaning trumps grammar. This is going to cause very big problems in our relationship to text and to the Western world in general. Um, But Mishnah, for our purposes, means either to teach or to sharpen. Sharpen. Shinun, if I have a... Uh, a knife, right? But it's a specific type of teaching and a specific type of sharpening, right? Everybody ever sharpen a knife with a, with a whetstone or a, or a you know, steel, right? You do it once, you've done nothing. It's a repetitive motion that you make it sharp through repetition, right? And that is specifically the type of teaching that Mishnah is meant to be, right? That's what the Gemara says, Shinana, right? And the Gemara wants to say like, oh, you're, 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 you're a sharp student, Right? Shinana. Oh, like, well, what? You means you've sharpened your mind. And this, I want you to hear that, that the Mishnah is eminently memorizable. There have been many scholars who have pointed out, and it's not a hidden fact, that the Mishnah will use what we call mnemonic devices, both structurally, right, the way it repeats things, the way it relates to ideas, the way it will sometimes use um, sort of like uh, almost codified, like meaning codes. Right? That it's clear that it was meant to be memorized. But that's not just a problem of information transmission. One second. You know what else it does when you repeat something over and over and over again? It changes your mind. Meaning it does, the text is secondary. It makes you into a proper reader. Right? That the mission is not just a code of law and information. It's a tool of education. Right? It's meant to make you into the type of person so that when you encounter the case the Mishnah doesn't mention, having learned the whole entire Mishnah over and over your entire life, right, your mind is set to say, where's the distinction? How does this fit? What category can I put it in? What's the case to which I can relate it? You know, we'll speak more about these particular tools. So I want you to appreciate that, that, that Mishnah can mean to learn and it can mean to repeat. And it can mean to sharpen.
There was a hand there. Yeah. I'm listening. Uh, how does, I want to ask, how does fit in the does Meaning to change something? Yeah. I, I, grammatically, I think it's a different word. Although, I think, it's a different, I think it's a different word. We'd have to look at what the shorish is. But that's not my, that's not my strong suit. We, we can think about it. But as far as I, I know, it's a different word. So, so first of all, there, there, there's an important distinction right away. Because Midrash seeking, the question comes up where, what? Seeking where? Right? What, what is the Midrash, is, what's its field? Well, what it's seeking is meaning, and particularly we're interested in law, but where is the Midrash seeking? Yeah, there, there has to be a text which is attached, and that's why there's an entire category which is known as Midrash Halacha. Right? Meaning most people, when they think of Midrash, are thinking of the narrative, the stories of the Midrash, and you know, the Rabbas, and the Tanhuma, and you know, the Alku, whatever. And that's probably the most familiar area of Midrash. But there is a core element of Midrash, which is called Midrash Halakha, the Sifra, the Sifri, the Kohanim, right? where these are halachic works. They're halachic works built on the structure of the Torah, verse by verse. Right? And there are all kinds of debates. Are they learning the laws out, meaning through exegesis, through analysis of text, or is the text being used as a structure to remember the law, meaning the law existed and they were just placing it on? Eh, we don't need to get into that debate. One way in which the law has been carried forward is through Midrash, a seeking within the text of the Torah. And, and, and of course, the, the power here means that, in theory, the law is always there. As long as you have the tools of exegesis, or really hermeneutics, exegesis is one tool, the tools of hermeneutics, how do you derive meaning from text, then in theory you should always be able to get it. By the way, if you indulge in the traditional liturgy, you may have noticed this morning that, that um, in the transition between the sacrifice and the korbanot and Sukkot Zimra, we say the Yud Gimel Mido Sheat Torah Nidreshet Behem, the 13 principles through which the Torah is darshaned, right, through, through which we derive meaning from the Torah. And those are principles which, in theory, mean that you could take those 13 principles, as the Rambam actually says in Hilchot Mamrim, and take a verse from the Torah, drop them into the 13 principle machine, you know, grind it through, and out pops divine law. That's, that's an astounding assertion. Right? And that first really appears in the mind of the Gemara back with Hillel. Hillel is the real champion of, of that, the seven principles of Hillel, what they call them. Yes, although we spoke about that last year at length, myth, allegory, and midrash. I, I can't go back, but I can send you the, the, some stuff on it if you're interested. Um, but yes, absolutely. There's, there, there are, there's overlap, and there's, 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 um, there's, what's it called when you diverge? Um, and, and the real question is what the role of allegory plays. Um, but here, what we're speaking about is more of the, the legal side of midrash. So, so midrash halacha is exegesis, or we're going to call it hermeneutics. The, in general, hermeneutics is the broad question of how one derives meaning from text, right? And exegesis is the specific tool of analysis of, 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 of driving meaning from, as opposed to what's known as, e, I think, eisegesis, where you actually read meaning in, right? But they're somewhat interchangeable, and they're fun words you can use with your friends. Um, but but um, we're going to call this hermeneutics. Is it E? Yeah, I think it is E first. U-T-S-E-S. Excellent, thank you. 
Um, I can misspell in several languages. Um, so this is one side of the equation. And as I said, the, the key here, and we still haven't spoken about which one comes first, but the key here is, is, that, is that it's an engagement with a pre-existing text. So therefore, when you say, where did you get that from, Rabbi? They can flip open the Torah and say, right here. And so as long as you believe God gave the Torah at Sinai, I have a fighting chance to convince you that what I'm telling you is God's intention. You understand? The Mishnah is what's known, again, not 100%, but by and large, as apodictic, which is a fun word. Also. Right? Apodictic means I'm just asserting to you that that's the way it is. And anybody who's learned enough Mishnah has had this experience. You can go whole prokim in the Mishnah without ever seeing a verse from the Torah. Just, this is it. That's it. And this is the way you do it. And that's it. So the question that comes up almost inevitably for any student is, well, says who? I mean, where, did you, where did you get this notion from that this is what we're supposed to do? Meaning, if it's just the rabbis saying this is the way we do it, so fine. Every culture has its legal system. But, but the sages are arguing on a much deeper level, often, not always, that this is Torah-level law. So, so as you say, where'd you, where'd you get this idea that this is what God wants you to do? Right? That, that your tefillin have to be black and square, and you know, this is the way you're going to put the partiot in there. Right? What, what's the answer to tefillin? What do we say? It's halacha moshe misinai. And so there's a, there's a deeper polemic, we're just going to keep throwing out all the really good words today, right? that, that underlies this discussion, that Mishnah is apodictic. It doesn't present any previous text and a process of analysis or derivation. It just says, this is the way we do it. And so here, the source of authority is what? Torah. So I mean, okay, we could argue about whether you believe the Torah is a source of authority or not, but at least in late antiquity, that wasn't such a hot topic amongst the Jews or the Jews and the Christians. Don't forget that debate's in the background, too. All the Jews and the Christians, too, believed that the Torah was given by God to Moshe at Sinai. And if he didn't believe it, one could argue, ipso facto, you weren't a Jew at that point. Um, but where did this notion come from, that the Jews are holding a body of law, which is not written down? That everybody agrees on before Rebbe, that it wasn't written down. Maybe what were called Megillat Starim, that people like took notes in class, but that specifically were not written down in authoritative form. Where does that originate? Isn't there somewhere, there, there must be somewhere based, and this is just a compensation of all of it. But where did it come from? Where did that basis, where did that body of law come from? You understand my question? So the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> which is the same, the same answer, which is the same answer. Yes. Wait, wait, I want to make sure people heard that. We say it again? Say it again. That's a very important point you just made. Yes. Why? Because ironically, the assumption here is that this is dependent upon human conception. How well can you dig? And this one's assumed to have an integrity of tradition. Right? This fight goes back, as far as we can trace it, to the third century before the Common Era. Right? In the third century before the Common Era, right, that's, the area, that's the era before the Maccabean Revolt, right? there's already a 
struggle going on within Am Yisrael between the groups who will become the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We spoke at length about this last semester, or last year, right? Around what's known as the traditions of the fathers. But there's a group of Jews who become the Pharisees and the rabbis will inherit their mantle. I say that carefully because it's not so clear that there's a direct line between them, but the rabbis will certainly inherit their mantle, who say that we have an oral tradition going back to Moshe at Sinai, which has the same level of integrity as the text of the Torah. Why wasn't it written down? Well, we can get into all kinds of reasons why it wasn't written down, but that's a secondary question. It's an assertion. Notice the epidictive. We have it. And it has authority because it's integrity of tradition from Moshe at Sinai. Now, there are many ways to understand this. One, on certain level, the oral law starts in a very specific moment in the Torah. You know what it is? Who was waiting for Moshe when he came down off of Sinai with the Torah? Yehoshua. As soon as Yehoshua says to Moshe, ooh, what'd you get? Right? And Moshe has to somehow explain to him whatever text he's holding in his experience of revelation has now to be explained to someone else. That's the beginning of oral Torah. The, the, the oral Torah, will, some element of the oral Torah is always an attempt to make that bridge between a text, which is something other than the world, and the world as you know it. Today it's extreme, right? Because the, the Torah was given in a time which is, there, there were no microwaves at Sinai. But Rav Moshe Feinstein could decide what God thinks about the microwave because of the structures of the oral Torah. Like how do I work with bridging that gap? So that's one element of the oral Torah. And that one, as we say, is, it's, it's a logical force to play. That, that, that must exist. Right? Moshe says, bind those assigned upon your arms. The first Jew that hears that says, okay, Moshe, what's that look like? And then you get Torah, Moshe, be Sinai. That's one piece, but that's not the problematic element. Almost always. I do. I don't know. That's a great question. It's a great question. I think that we could probably find the struggle between the fallibility of human reason and the assumption of, of integrity of tradition intention in many places. Although I would point out that the Gemara has a counterpoint. Lamli cross, svarahi, right? Like the, the, sometimes the Gemara will be going back and forth in an argument about a particular point, and one of the Amoraim will bring a verse to prove their point, and the answer will be, what do I need a verse for? It's a svara, meaning that your mental processes properly employed are assumed to be expressive of divine truth. So there, there, there is a, a, a point and counterpoint here, but I think that, that Jerry is correct, that by and large, the Gemara will lean toward tradition when, when push comes to shove. And a lot of that is because of the, the challenge of where did this apodictic law come from? What is the origin of the Mishnah? And, and the assertion, tra the traditional assertion, is that it is actually older than Midrash Halacha. That, that the, the traditional assertion is that the apodictic came first from where? From Moshe, right? Or if you don't want to believe that, it's just before the third century common era, it was already a collection of traditional practice, as, as you know, the historians would say, along came a polemic between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about where did that law come from? We don't, the Sadducees say, we don't buy it, right? Famously, Sadducees rejected 
the traditions of our fathers. So therefore, a project of the Pharisees began to derive the same laws from the text, and you get the emergence of Midrash Halakha after, but at a certain point, that project comes to an end, either because the necessary skills fade, which there seems to be some indications in the Gemara that people simply lost the ability, also because of the very dangerous potential. As I said, it's all well and good to say I can take a verse, drop it into the 13 principle machine and you know, outspit the will of God, but who says I'm doing it correctly? And who says that I have the authority? This is a question that comes up upstairs all the time, right? You read the Midrash, the rabbis say the most outrageous things, right? How come I can't say the same thing? You know what my answer is? You can, but no one's going to listen to you, right? No, I mean, like, that authority is a very, a very important element of this discussion. Uh huh. Well, that's that is part of the oral law. It is, although what it exactly means is what far from clear. Compared to the rest, of the people think, well, that's not in the Gemara, but it's So, but if there are both parts of the oral law, where we make a distinction, in fact, if you say Salafah, it's more of an authoritative um, bringing down of the oral law because you've got the source there. On the other hand, all the oral laws are Right, and this is going to take us to another question, which is that if all the oral law comes from Moshe at Sinai, how could we have so many arguments, which we're going to need to speak about in the Mishnah? But I would say this, the Gemara itself is not consistent in its usage of the term halacha Moshe mi Sinai. The simplest explanation is we're done with this argument. No, it's authoritative. It's an authoritative statement. It's not a historical one or even a, an exegetical one. It's a, listen, this is the way we do it. And, and, and it's true, you can keep undermining my arguments, but it's the way we do it, and it's the way we've always done it, by implication. And therefore, it's halacha mosh misina, and not everything needs to have the rational, logical, proof basis. Sometimes we do what we do, because that's what we do, and furthermore, it's who we are. So there's two pieces, which I can see from the clock, we're not going to get to, to in the extent they need to, but I want them to follow us, which is that the question of authority and the question of identity are deeply related. Do you understand? Is that, is that before the temple falls and the boundaries of the national entity um, are sort of dissolved, a Judean came in many flavors. Maybe you accepted the traditions of the fathers, maybe you didn't. Maybe you sacrificed in the temple, maybe you didn't. Maybe you paid your temple tax, maybe you didn't. Right? There are all kinds of ways to claim you're a Judean. But at this point of our story moving forward, we're going to have progressively greater one-to-one -one identification between the practices of halakha and the identity of a Jew. This is what people call the rabbinic project. Right? You could say the rabbinic project is, finally, we've got the Jews to do what God wanted them to, which is the way the rabbis looked at it. Or you can take the sort of more cynical approach that sort of classic historians do, which is that it was, a, it was a power play by a certain subgroup of the Jews who survived the destruction and for various reasons were able to get their hold on the Jews. It doesn't matter. But as this one-to-one -one identification, again, between law and identity moves further, then the power of authority and, and the boundaries of identity will become one-to-one. -one. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that, is that what a Jew is, is someone who keeps the law by the time the rabbis are done. So therefore, if I say what the law is, I also define 
What is Jew? Ah, and now you understand why today in modernity, when we've dismissed the authority of any one individual or group of individuals to dictate the law, we suddenly ended up in this mess of what a Jew is. And it's interesting that it's happened when you once again have a national boundary where you can have someone who is halakhically not a Jew, halakhically, but is certainly part of the story of Am Yisrael in very real and sometimes tragic and powerful ways. And, and like suddenly all these structures have just come right back up because what's going to happen from the time of the Mishnah through the Gaonim, there's going to be a progressive battle to create this one-to-one identity between halacha and Jew. They will succeed and then for another thousand years, more or less, that will continue. And there will be challenges, and we'll talk about the Karaites and all kinds of stuff, but more or less they succeed. And then come around the 18th, late 18th, early 19th century, that starts to crack, and then it blows. And then lo and behold, before the Jews can just disappear into the sea of history, you suddenly have a whole new way of being Jewish. We call it Israeli. Right? So if we stick together for the next two three years, you'll hear that part of the story. Um, but for now, we have these two forms of law. Midrash and Mishnah, which as they pointed out to you, there's the hermeneutic, some text which I'm seeking, within which I'm seeking meaning, right? And the apodictic and inherited definitive statements which make no, I'm telling you, you can go whole prakim in the Mishnah without seeing any attempt to tell you why you should do what I'm telling you to do. That's just what you should do, right? The traditional approach is that Rabbi Akiva has his hand in forming both of them, right? And that in particular, Rabbi Akiva created the structures of the Mishnah, which, which Rabbi Yudha Nasi inherits. What's interesting is that there's a very important statement, which you know, Jerry pointed out on the way out the door last week, which I promise you we get back to, right? Is that the, the, you know, the Mishnah is very funny in structure. If you guys haven't learned Mishnah, I encourage you to get out there and, and learn it. It's, it's highly worthwhile, and it's unique. You know, and there are many people who will tell you that the Gemara is reflective of a particular literary form that was common in the Roman Empire that mixed like, the legal and story forms. It was like basically a digest, right? Like the reader's digest of its day, if you will, right? Um, but that the Mishnah structurally is, is unique for its day, and, and its structure is a lot of its power. So it's worth it, really, to get out there and learn. I encourage everybody to do it every day. Um, but there are a few hallmarks of the Mishnah that we need to deal with. Um, first of all, argumentation, right? Mission is often presented as case law, and indeed what's called casuistry, which again, we're gonna get all the good words out today, right? Um, casuistry is, is, is a hallmark of Mishnaic thought. I wrote down so that I wouldn't, wouldn't confuse you guys. I wrote down a, a concise definition of casuistry. Here is it. Can I write it down? Oh, the word? Probably not. You're just trying to make me feel that, aren't you? Right? Casuistry. It's, it's essentially case law. It's essentially case law, reasoning from specific case as opposed to general principle. It runs against classic Greek thought. Right? Classic Greek thought is from the abstract principle, and then you find concepts to or situations to demonstrate. Right? Rabbinic thought in general is case-based law, which, by the way, goes hand in hand with the fact that halacha is always experientially oriented. Right? What do I mean? Does the sun actually rise in the east and set in the west? At this point, I'm hoping you all know the answer is no. Nevertheless, despite that knowledge, when you wake up in the morning, you do not feel the earth rotating. You see the sun rising. And so therefore, the halacha is concerned with your experience of the world, not with its actuality, which, by the way, plays out in very important ways 
especially in the modern era of science and all that, right? So, so because of that focus on experience, the case-based approach is very important. I'll never forget like, the trouble I've had. I used to teach for many years um, the laws of kashrut. And in the classical laws of kashrut, you go from the laws of salting meat to the laws of basar um, v'chal, of milk and meat, to what's known as the laws of tarovot, of, of mixtures. Right? No logical thinker would do it that way. You would start with the laws of tarovot, which are all the general principles. And then you would go to the particular case of basar v'chal, and then you would get to to, to salting meat and, and blood, which are like separate issues. But, but the traditional, the way the Shulchan Aruch writes it, and the traditional way it's done is the exact opposite. It causes so many problems. Because I'm, I'm teaching the laws of salting meat, and I'm introducing all these abstract concepts. I'm like, we'll get to it in a year and a half. We'll get to it in a year and a half. Why? Why does the Shulchan Aruch present it that way? It's very simple. What's the first thing you have to do in order to eat meat? You have to slaughter it, actually. Right? And that's why the laws, of, the laws of shechita come first. And then you have to get rid of the blood, which is why the laws... And then, you understand? He's dealing with the reality of the situation, not with the abstract principles. That's what casuistry is. It's, it's a case-based approach, which is always rooted in lived experience. And that already comes to answer one of the other questions, which is why does the Mishnah give you conflict? Right? It gives you this opinion versus that opinion. Right? And it keeps, even though it will sometimes even tell you, and the opinion is like so-and-so, it'll keep the minority opinion, the wrong answer, right? which is one of the things that militates against it being case law. Like People often present the Mishnah as a book of case law. It doesn't really work well that way, especially because it often doesn't resolve whose opinion we actually hold by. Right? So, but what you're seeing, again, is not case law. It's a reflection parallel lived traditions. We spoke about this briefly last week, if I recall correctly, that the, that the time leading from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, back in the year 70, to the time when Rabbi actually sits down in his study in Sipori and decides to write the Mishnah, so to speak, right, um, are, are at least three generations, depending on how you count it, of chaos in the land of Israel. And, and, and to go from the Galilee to Judea or from, you know, from the coast to the mountains was not a simple thing. People were living parallel lives. And so you have parallel lived traditions. So Rebbe was not going to be so quick to dismiss, even though he might think, you know, Rebbe Yossi Galilee was wrong. And in fact, the Torah did forbid you to have chicken parmesan, even though it didn't, you can't milk a chicken, right? You know, he might think that Rebbe Yossi is wrong. But there's two reasons that he's not going to knock Rebbe Yossi's opinion out of the Mishnah. Number one, as it says, actually, in the mission Eduyot, by the way, the, the, the Masechet Eduyot, testimonies, is historically, they think, the oldest section of the Mishnah, and in many ways is the most important for our discussion because it gives you some indications of like, why, like, why we're doing it. And in fact, explicitly says, why, says the Mishnah, why we keep the minority opinion, the single opinion, amongst the majority opinion, Right? And, and since the halacha is only like the majority, meaning if it was case law, what do I need to know this for? Right? Because it might be that there'll be a time when a court will come along and say, you know what? That guy was right. And all those other guys, they were wrong. So now, they're not overturning the system. What are they doing? Just a little fix. You hear the profundity of the acceptance of the fact that you could all agree and be still be wrong? 
right? And, and, and this is a question that we're going to have to deal with, which is that how is it that Rebbe was able to transform the same energy that destroyed the second temple into a driver for positive identity? What do I mean? Why was the second temple destroyed? Yeah, so one of the greatest victories of rabbinic education that everyone will say Sinat Chinam, even though the rabbis themselves will give you a good 18 different reasons why. But, but, but Sinat Chinam is we can't agree on things, right? Right? And what happens in the Mishnah? We can't agree on things. Machloket. Sinat Chinam becomes Machloket. And, and as, as the Mishnah Eduyot says, now Machloket is not the thing that threatens to tear Am Yisrael apart. It's the thing that actually preserves the whole project. Because we assume that just because we all agree on something right now in this room that it's correct, and, and Avram says, no, you guys are all wrong. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write down, we all agree. But Avram says we're wrong. <laughs> And in two generations, people are going to look back and they say, gosh, you know what? Avram's right. Those people were wrong. Isn't the issue it's not the answer that counts as the questions? You know, as long as we're questioning and talking, it's not the Gosh, we've opened so many boxes. Um, I, I have to address that. Because first of all, I, I, I love it. I agree. It's a beautiful thing. Trust my teaching pardes. I love the questions. Not so much the answers. But Rebbe had another problem. Like he said, we had these parallel lived traditions. Rebbe Yossi Gali ate chicken parmesan. All the people in this town ate chicken parmesan. They loved it, and he gave it his extra. People come from other towns and say, you can't do that. We won't eat here. And there's a great danger, then, of what? What's the next step? You're not Jews. We know this game, right? Um, and and so, so, so Rebbe had to deal with the parallel lived tradition, but he had to deal with the fact that there was going to be a dispersion. It was already happening. That the idea of these parallel play, like we can be Jews here and you can be Jews there, and since we're all kind of here, we're all Jews, is disappearing. And therefore, there had to be psak. And we speak about the relationship between halach and psak right now, and, and, and it'll open up, I hope, uh, a very different way of relating to the whole project that we're engaged in here. You know, halacha literally means what? means the way, means to go. It's a, it's a process orientation, right? We translate it as Jewish law, but it literally means the way, like the Tao, right? And now, if you go to a rabbi and you ask a question, you get what? Psak. Psak comes from what word? The hafsik. To stop. Now, wait a minute. The whole system is called the way. Psak. Here, I'll, 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 I'll write it up. In, in the, the, you know, we call the system as a whole is halakha, right? Just Jewish law, but it really means the way. But when you go ask for a question, or you ask for an answer, I guess, see, I've betrayed my training, sorry, it's hard to see. You go ask for an answer, what you get is psak, right? Which means, you know, an, an answer, but, but it comes from which is to stop that process. Now, this is a very big problem because most people would assume that when you go to a rabbi and say, Rabbi, can I eat chicken with milk? The rabbi says, no, that that's the truth. Correct? And all the sort of equivocations around it are just a lack of understanding. But when I ask you if I can eat it, yes, give me a yes or no. Anybody ever do this? When people come knock on my door and start a- and ask me a question, I start to give them a whole McGill. My wife says, they just want to know the answer. You know, like, um, so I'll tell you a quick story, which I think some of you have probably heard before because I like to tell it to everybody. Imagine you're a farmer. You're a farmer sometime in the Middle Ages. You're not so wealthy, so you don't eat so much meat. But there's a simcha, so you're going you're gonna to shech the chicken. You want a chicken? 
Simple chef chicken problem is you're looking and think, ooh, maybe I didn't do it right. That's a big deal. That's a lot of lost money there. So you're going to bring it to the Beit Midrash. You know, ask the rabbi. Walk in the Beit Midrash. Oh, it's very nice. Rabbi, the chicken, the slaughter, is it? Looks at it. Students look at it. A couple questions. In. It's okay. You can eat chicken. So you're really happy because you can eat chicken. Not only that, but this was far quicker than you thought it would be. So you got a little time on your hands. You're not off in the Beit Midrash. You pull a mission off the shelf. You sit down. You start to learn. And you put the chicken on the bench. And, and, and suddenly you notice you get distracted because the rabbi and the students are still talking about your chicken. And it turns out, from what you can tell from the conversation, that maybe your chicken's not so kosher after all. So you start to get really agitated. You jump up and say, hey, Rabbi, you said the chicken was kosher. Rabbi turns out and says, what? Are you still here? You want to eat the chicken? Take the chicken home and eat chicken. You want to learn Torah? Put the chicken in the fridge and sit here and learn Torah. <laughs> you understand the difference? Is that psak is not the truth of the matter. Psak is a concession of the need to live. Right? Because halacha is the pursuit of God's will in the world, and God's will is too big to be embodied in my life or yours. But the genius of Rebbe and those who preceded him and those who came after him was their deep love of the need to live in the world with integrity. And so therefore, they developed a process by which you can stop and say, yes, you know what? Oh, you're a poor farmer? Oh, this, you don't do this so often? Well, let's look at exactly, well, the truth is, yeah, we could, we could get to it. By the way, rich farmer walks in, asks the same question. You know what the rabbi might say? Yeah. Sorry. You know, give it, to the, give it to Christopher, your friend over there. Right? Same chicken. And that's like Lamasa. People have learned halacha. That is a real consideration. Why? Because halacha is often a discourse of values surrounding behavior. How do I embody my values in behavior? And since the values shift and behavior shifts and the context shifts, this idea that psak embodies the truth is a mistake. Well, what's the problem with halacha embodying the truth? Ain lidavar sof. There is no end. And this is the heart and soul of machloket. That, that Rebbe, when he wants to take these parallel lived traditions, whether they're written down, which I I'm with the scholars who say they were not written down, or they were oral texts, there was, a, there was a structure of teaching, right? There were parallel lived traditions. He's got a problem. He's got the Jews who are living with integrity in very different ways. So he brings them together in one structure, but that's still not enough. Because then you're just going to have what we call parallel play, right? You guys know what I mean? Like you put like two two-year-olds down on the floor, not playing with each other. If you're lucky, they play nicely next to each other, right? Because um, what Rebbe has a bigger agenda. Rebbe wants to create the portable homeland, right? He wants to create a place that the Jews can not only live but can actually come into being, which is beyond the bounds of time and space, to borrow a phrase, right? Remember, he's sitting in Tsipori in the southern Galilee, but he's a visionary leader. He understands already that the bulk of Jews are living to the east in the Parthian Empire. And if you give him a little bit of the touch of Nevuah that existed in his house, then he understands that this process with Rome is going to be a long process. And there will be Jews in Parthia, there will be Jews in North Africa, there will be Jews in Brooklyn. right? And, and we want them all to be one people. The temple's gone. That won't unite us anymore. The national vessel is gone in his day. That can't hold us together any longer. What will hold us together? A conversation. A conversation that transcends time and space. And like, I got students upstairs who are talking to sages from the first century right now. 
It's an astounding thing which he accomplished. And the only way he could do it was to go beyond this need to take each piece and create a parallel tradition, but to put them into discourse with each other with the hope that they were going somewhere. That the Mishnah trains you through sharpening and repetition to have a voice in a conversation whose goal is to map God's will in the whole world. So therefore, the Mishnah will go as a portable homeland wherever the Jews go. And basically what happens, you take the Mishnah, add water, and poof, you've got the Jews. They'll come up in Bavel, they'll come up in North Africa, they'll come up in Poland. Oh, we'll talk about what's the Gemara, but the reality is that the Gemara is already incipient in the Mishnah. The Gemara is actually nothing new. And we'll speak about what that is. The Mishnah, however, is something radically new. Right? And the power of this portable homeland is that it solves the whole problem of dispersion. I just want you to consider the fact that you can open this text right now and learn it in the exact same way that a Jew in 5th century Tunisia could. That is an astounding binding factor across time and space. Right? And really the heart and soul of it is Machloket. The last two minutes, just add this to our picture, right? that, that the three-letter root of the word machloket is what? Chelek, right? which means a portion. The, the difference between sinat chinam and machloket l'shem shemayim, right? machloket l'shem shemayim is, is argument for the sake of heaven. What does it mean? It means that I have a piece of heaven, but it's premised on the notion that, you know who else does? You, and you, and you, and you. And here's the trick. Instead of Sinat Chinam, which says that I'm right and therefore you must be wrong, and I have to control the mount, which was really what a lot of the argument was about, right? If I am true Israel, I must control the mount. That's the only way the game will play out. Now, I realize that I have a portion of something much larger than me, and so do you. And the only way we can see a whole picture is how? Putting them together. And this is an image I've given some of you. Imagine, when I was in college, I went to school in Colorado College, right at the foot of Pikes Peaks. It's a 14,000 foot mountain. Imagine I'm on one side and Jerry's on the other. We're talking on cell phones, and I say, you see this mountain? Phenomenal, 1,300 foot granite headwall. And he says to me, what are you talking about? It's this brown, snow-covered you know, lump of, we start to argue about it. You know, which one of us is right? right? Only in our argument are we correct. Because we're mapping something which is too big for either of us to grasp. And that's the other element that Rebbe builds into the Mishnah, which is why, of course, the conversation in the Mishnah spirals very quickly into much bigger space that we call the Gemara, right? Because he takes parallel lived traditions. He puts them together in a way which will preserve the wisdom that each of those traditions embodied. However, he gives us a mechanism that will allow them to unite into one practice, but without the totalitarianism of erasing the past, because the world changes. And it might be that that past way of being is more fit to the future than the present, right? And he does so by binding together a people who will continue to map God's will onto the world wherever they go. And as we'll speak about in the coming weeks, that this itself implies the fact that exile is not necessarily a punishment, but is actually the next step in the divine plan. But that's a discussion for the next class. So we're going to stop there, and we'll pick up next week. This is a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org.